Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another awesome July 2018 edition of Ignite Radio Live. Over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio, you are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter, J.P. Schleter on soundboard, and two wonderful (laughs) guests in our studio with actually three, kind of, sort of, a cute little stuffed guest. But more to that later. We're delighted to be with you this evening. So, folks, we are exhorted to go into the world and make disciples. In fact, to be a disciple is not something that's just, I like the word, solipsistic, just about ourselves. It is meant to overflow to others. And if it doesn't overflow to others, it's like the uh, parables in the gospel, the, the, the investment that we've been given, even that is taken away. God gives us, he invests in us our blessings and gifts that are meant to be invested in others. That's how the world is meant to multiply. And so I think the two guests tonight, husband and wife team with the beautiful little son, a new, beautiful trinity here, are going to share with us uh, if you will, an image of their own journey and their current work as Catholic evangelists, really. Catholic Woo-hoo. disciples for focus. Before we go there, though, a little commercial. And I want to just begin with this commercial by saying, how awesome would it be if we looked at our spouse and our children and our families as a gift that uh, that we open and is always um, new and exciting and is always a new horizon of possibility How many times do we limit our spouses or our children to something finite, something discovered, and we become disinterested? But by virtue of God's design of family, imaging the Trinity, there's a horizon in our relationships that can be opened up, that can and ought to edify our time together. And our homes are meant to be sacred churches, ecclesia domestica. They're meant to be these places where we more fully discover God alive. Do we make that happen? Is it happening in our homes? Truthfully, I think all of us recognize we would like that to happen more often. We'd like to more fully discover God alive. And I'll say to you right now, there's nothing that replaces it. There's no video games. There's no electronic entertainment. Um, all great things in their own time and place. There's nothing that replaces discovering God more fully alive in one another. So if you desire to discover that more fully, we invite you to go to ilovemyfamily.us. I love my family.us. You're beginning to probably see some billboards going up around the city as part of this campaign. Maybe some automobile magnets going up. Um, our event, Family Emmaus, has this theme August 12th. Uh, again, you'll find it all at I love my family.us. It's about proclaiming it. When we speak to the atmosphere, it changes. When we speak negativity to the atmosphere, it changes it for the worse. When we speak positivity to the atmosphere, it changes it for the better. When we come down in the morning, I try to tell my kids, I love you. It's speaking a kind of, you know, if you will, life of God, vitality of the atmosphere that gets us on the right road. Well, what if collectively we proclaimed, I love my family? We're inviting you to join us in that, certainly in words, but even more as icons 
of the Trinity, living icons of the Trinity to communicate that life to a world that needs to know. So by all means, pray about the Supreme Court decision. Pray about politics. Be involved. Be engaged. Yes. But there's nothing that surpasses our living in the abundance of our uh, being icons of the Trinity and discovering that more fully. We want to journey with you in that. If you hunger for it, make the commitment right now to join us. Again, I love my family. U.S. So we often encourage each other and you, our listeners, um, just to bring it, to bring the Lord's grace and actually himself to those around you by your words. As Greg was saying, even just the proclamation of an I love you and proclaiming I love my family. But just as importantly, we're called to give witness. You know, we quote Revelation that they defeated the enemy by the blood of the Lamb our beautiful gift of the Mass, and the words of their testimony. And too often we think of testimony as this big, grand, crazy conversion story or miraculous healing or whatever, when look at the cross, that's our story, and how, how do our lives intermix with that, and you know what is the Lord doing in each of our daily lives in the ordinary. And so we're delighted to have with us in studio Amber and Stephen, and I'm going to Sobolski. There you go. <laughs> I should have just done it um, with us to share their testimony and the awesome gift that they are to so many in our church, in particular, our young adult generation. So we're going to go to Amber first there, um, so she can give us a little bit of background of how she came to the place where she is now married to Stephen for... Two years, and they have a little 10-month-old Tobiah Joseph, who's at home sleeping, hopefully still. Um, But we're going to back that up. And Amber, if you could begin and just kind of give us a brief um, testimony about how you got to where you are right now. Like, what was your first encounter with the Lord, and what did he do with you? I've been so blessed that I can't really remember a time where I didn't know Jesus, that I didn't have that experience of he was someone I could go to, that I could talk to, that I could share my life with. Some of my earliest memories, it's perfect that you mentioned that uniting with the cross, are those memories of times that I was really in that depth of sorrow or there was something going on that was just really rough. I remember having a fight with my family when I was little and running out of my house and into the chicken coop next door where we kept all of our <laughs> our like work tools and, and just taking a piece of wood and cutting it in half and nailing it together and making a cross. Mm-hmm. And there was like something mm-hmm. in... My young, I was probably seven or eight, young kid that just knew that was the consolation. That was Mm -hmm. where I was called to go. That's where the grace was. And the Lord just continued to bless me throughout my childhood of those experiences of knowing that he was near to me, especially when I was at my lowest moments. Mm -hmm. That led me into college was for sort of my first experience with Catholicism. I met a classmate my freshman year who started introducing me to what the church teaches. He started asking me questions about what I believed about Christianity, what I believed about Jesus, where did that come from, all of those kind of things. And so sort of intellectually, I started to learn about the Catholic faith, started to really love and understand, yes, this does make sense. Mm -hmm. This does seem more true than what I believed before. But perhaps even more importantly, he brought me to the Eucharist. And I have these very vivid memories from college of coming to these nights of worship, as they called it. I went to Bowling Green State University, and there was the incense and the lights and music, and just the Eucharist was up there on the Mm -hmm. altar. 
And there was something about that experience, something about walking into that room that I knew there was something different there and I desired to be there. That's so beautiful. And eventually over time led to going to mass, led to this drawl, this encounter that I want to receive Jesus in the Eucharist. I want to be part of this faith. I want to be able to receive him in that fullness. And so I came into the church after my junior year of college and also around that time was really instrumental as I was in a talk there where someone gave a call to everyone who was in the room to spend at least 30 minutes a day in mental prayer mm. with Jesus, listening to Jesus, trying to see what he wants for my life, having a relationship with him. And that daily commitment, I had always known Jesus, but I kind of went to him whenever I it came to me, you know, whenever I felt like I needed him, which, you know, the trick of the devil was not as often as it should have been. <laughs> And so that call to spend daily prayer, to be committed every single day to at least that time, I mean, the kind of personality they am, I immediately changed my schedule, wrote that 30 minutes in, committed to it. And that's what's changed my life, not even only that year, but every year since then. That's been, oh, geez, like seven years ago now. Praise God. So pause on that moment and then take us forward after I ask you this question to the point of getting involved and focus in this man named Stephen, who we will meet very quickly. Uh, so mental prayer, a lot of folks have a difficult time in unstimulated environments. Audio, visual, we're just so accustomed to that. So simply to take the step into the scary space of being still might for a lot of people truthfully be just a pious thing. Okay, I'm going to do this, but it's really just a, a penalty box, right? I'm just going to kind of sit here Explain for our listeners and for us, anybody who doesn't do that and hasn't done that, what it was like, just give us a sketch, what it was like to begin and what happened to the point now where you love it. See, first, there's some beautiful resources that the church provides, particularly um, there's this book, Time for God, that we recommend to everyone that we can that I just love. And I didn't... learn about it till many years later, but it very much describes my experience and my growth in mental prayer. So Time for God by Jacques Philippe. Oh, he's so good. Yeah. <laughs> With a name like that, how can he not he's be? A I, I forget uh, the name of his order. Even the name of his order is a beautiful yeah. name. So anyway. my first experience, kind of God's grace is abundant. When we say our yes to him, he, he calls to us first. And so every time we step forward in him, it's always a response. We're never making the initial approach to God. We're always responding, even if it doesn't feel like that. And so I did just kind of sit in the chapel and close my eyes and try to make this white screen in my head. And, you know, God Were was, you an engineer, by the way? What was your undergrad major? Uh, seventh through 12th grade math education. Okay. All right. Yep. So Whiteboard. I get it. Right. Just very clear. And so, but the Lord would pour grace. And I had during that time, just these beautiful experiences of songs that would come to me or visions or things that clearly were not coming from me. I never would have thought about mm. this. I, Yeah, and some songs that I still go back today that the Lord gave me melodies and words for, just this mm. beautiful, beautiful experience. But gradually out of that, then I started learning, kind of studying the faith, learning about what it means for mental prayer and then started doing Lexio Divina as kind of I teach it. There's many different ways that people talk about it, but really going through the scriptures and sitting and reading. And I would go through the daily scripture, whatever the gospel for that day was, and just read and wait until something stuck out to me. And it maybe stuck out to me because it really just popped off the page, or sometimes it's because it made me mad or 
made me really happy or was really confusing. And I'm like, I don't understand that at all. Anyway, that it stuck out to me. And I would stop and pray with that. And that was kind of a much, that kind of helped me grow in prayer a lot and grow to the point where I love it and was a lot easier way to listen than just sitting there like, I hope something comes to me. (laughs) That doesn't often lead to authentic Catholic prayer after Mm. a time. The Lord blesses it. But that kind of going to the scriptures, going to these different places where God promises that there's going to be grace and reading his word and books and other kinds of things. Awesome. Thank you. So for our listeners, and just a good challenge for all of us, I hear in Amber, as a young woman, number one, just making the decision, just the discipline to do it, not just kind of, sort of, maybe, but today, maybe for us folks, you know, when can you schedule that 10 minutes tomorrow uh, and make it happen as, a, as an appointment with God? Two, I, I definitely heard you say, you know, God is the boss. He's directing it. It's his love being outpoured that um, he's going to make himself known. And we do need to practice, certainly distill ourselves and that sort of thing. There are some, I think, perhaps practices there. But he, in the silence, does speak to us. Be still and know that I am God. I heard that Psalm 4610 um, speak as you were talking. Um, and then just the blessing of that. It's I hear you speak of there are at times a dynamic interaction that you know is beyond just happenstance, that you happen to be reading the scripture or this song that would not have come to you otherwise. And just the awareness that, that God you know, is alive in our souls, made our souls for his indwelling spirit. If nothing else, folks, how many of us don't need really just to know and have verified how holy we are? how sacred we are, what it means to be a temple. We hear that maybe catechetically, but do we really take God at his word? Do we allow ourselves to to have that kind of space? And even in light of this, and we could talk about this some other time, but um, if that's true, and all that you're saying is true, we know it is true, wouldn't the enemy want to attack that? And how would he attack that? He'd attack it by noise. He'd attack it by superficial, um, just inundation of, of stimulus input. Uh, as opposed to a much deeper, richer thing that I'm sure just um, floods the rest of your life, especially if we're able to do this in the morning, floods the way we think. The thesis statement of a paper is that prayer in the morning and how it overflows into every aspect of our lives. I can say and give testimony that uh, that's certainly when I do that, it is much more powerful and I find myself walking in his presence. So anyways, Stephen... Your turn. Share with us a little bit of your background. How'd you kind of really maybe come to more fully own your Catholic faith and maybe up to the point of uh, making it to focus? Sure, yeah. It was uh, certainly a a winding road that led me here. So I was raised Catholic um, by some very faithful and loving parents. Um, We went to Sunday Mass every week. Um, I was an altar boy. Um, but unlike Amber, I, I didn't really have a, an understanding of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, I didn't understand the centrality of Christ. And so when I was a teenager, I, I made the decision to stop practicing my faith. And looking back, I can see that there were, were two, two reasons that I, I had. One that I was, was very conscious of, the other that I wasn't as conscious of. The one that I was very conscious of was, was the question of truth. I, I became unmoored from the sense that that I, I know that what the church teaches is true, and, and I lost that conviction. Um, and so that was, that was what I told myself largely, that this was a question of truth. The other motivation was that I didn't want to live by a moral system that I didn't myself invent. Um, and so <laughs> that is really was, amusing. Uh, wasn't, wasn't as conscious of that motivation, but that was certainly there. 
Um, so I w- went to college, um, lived a, um, a very secular lifestyle. Um, I did make the decision to major in religion, which looking back was a, was a very big grace. I, I had a sense that this was, was something very important and I wanted to understand the, the religious impulse in man better. Um, but I, but I wasn't practicing my faith at all. Um, and I, my really ambitions in life, I wanted to, to become a writer. Um, so I majored in English in addition to, to religion. I wanted to be a writer. And when I graduated, I, I wanted to, to get an easy job that wouldn't take too much of my mental energy. I wanted to, to spend time reading and writing and eventually go to graduate school, teach creative writing. That was, that was how I was setting myself up, what I wanted to do. Um, so I, 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 graduated and I got a job. I ended up as a cake decorator. Um, and I had <laughs> Wait, religious awesome. studies thinking PhD cake <laughs> decorator. Yep. Yep. Which was, which was fine. And it afforded me plenty of time to write. Um, and I, I had write on cakes. <laughs> I, I did write a lot on cakes. That, that is true. Um, I, but I realized, uh, I had the life that I wanted. I, I had the life that I had desired for myself and I wasn't happy. And I could see, I, I thought about my future a lot, and I could see that even if I got all of the things I wanted, I wasn't going to be happy. And so I started in a sort of fumbling impulse to ask people to pray for me. I, mm-hmm. I had a sense that I didn't know what was true. I didn't know if, if God was out there, but if I knew that if he was, I needed his help. Um, and following closely from from that decision came another decision to, to investigate the, the, the faith I had grown up with. I, I had a, a deep intuition that if, if what the church taught was true, not only did I have to return to practicing the faith, but I had to give my whole life to, to, to that faith. Um, but that if it wasn't true, I needed to go off and find, find what was. I needed to find something to, to ground my life in. And so I went to um, Father Eric Nielsen, who was – I was living in Madison, Wisconsin at the time. Mm-hmm. He was a chaplain at the, the, the um, Newman Center um, at – UW Madison, and I I just had a sense that a, a chaplain at a, a Newman Center would be used to answering all the kinds of obnoxious questions that I had about the faith, <laughs> um, and and he was, and he was very wise, had had some good ready answers for my questions, um, but he also referred me to some some great books. Um, so he told me about Orthodoxy by Chesterton. Um, Love and Responsibility, um, ultimately by Carol Boitiwa before, before he became Pope John Paul II, um, which clarified greatly the church's teaching on, on sexuality in a way that was very helpful to me. Um, uh, the Cardinal Virtues by um, Joseph Pieper, which mm-hmm. laid out um, a vision of the good life, which I found very compelling. Um, but Father Eric also very wisely told me to, to read John's Gospel. He just said, just read it. And ask yourself if there's any truth in it. Mm. Mm. Um, and as I was reading it, I was particularly taken by the story of the woman at the well. Um, so Jesus meeting this woman and talking about the, the water she would draw from the well and the water that he would give. And saying that those who, who drink the water from this well will thirst again, but that those who drink the water that he would give would never thirst and I, I can't explain it in any other way than in that moment and for the first time the Lord spoke to me and I really encountered him in, in the reading of scripture and I realized that I've been going to all of my different wells and expecting them to satisfy me and they haven't. 
but at least here is an offer of, of definitive and, and final satisfaction of, of the longing of my heart. And I wasn't in that moment converted, um, but, but that, was, that began a process by which I came to a point where I saw that the Holy Spirit was calling me home, and I had the good sense to go. Um, and so awesome. it's actually my, my five-year anniversary is coming up on, on July 19th, 2013, was, was when I, I returned. I went to confession for the first time, I think, in about 12 years then, um, and returned to the practice of my faith, and, and it really is, has made all the difference. Beautiful. Stephen, that's just uh, beautiful. And I think for our listeners, uh, the word truth can be nebulous. We have, uh, in fact, even the word Webster word, I think, this year was post-truth. And there's just a a questioning of truth. What is true? Um, But you had it in your heart, uh, a conviction that there is a truth, and not just mathematical truth, a conceptual truth, but a truth of our nature, a truth of our purpose, um, a truth that uh, maybe is the design of our life, uh, it seems to me when you use the word truth that, that that's what it meant to you, that, you know, we have a design kind of thing. I mean, is that what was connecting with you as you were seeking truth more than just something you could answer on a multiple-choice exam? It connected to your deepest heart. Your heart was open and pining for a kind of human truth. And you're finding in your life now as one who looked into that truth that it connected and is connecting. Absolutely. So... So who wants to share briefly how you guys met and what happened? Sure. Uh, Stephen can start since he met me first. <laughs> <laughs> how that works, I don't know, but okay. <laughs> sure. So yeah, so uh, we, we met as, as Focus missionaries. So I, uh, I'll tell a little bit of background of the organization. So Focus is the, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students. Uh, it was founded in 1998, I believe. So I've been around 20 years Um and it's a um, we send missionaries to um, college campuses, primarily um, university campuses, um, who are able to to meet students where they're at, to build authentic friendships with them, to um, help them develop a habit of divine intimacy, mm-hmm. and to pass on not just faithfulness but fruitfulness, a desire and and the skills necessary to share the faith with others, build them up, and send them out on mission as well. Um, and so there were focused missionaries at, at UW-Madison. I got to know them, and I really liked the way they lived. Um, and so that um, brought me to the decision to to apply to become a missionary. Um, and and so I, I began that journey in, in 2014. Um, and Amber and I uh, got to know each other at training. Um, we... Um, became acquainted. Um, I, I noticed her before she noticed me, um, as <laughs> so you think. sometimes happens. Um, I think we were, we were in a class for all of the new missionaries who hadn't been acquainted or hadn't worked with Focus before we showed up at training. And I talked a lot in that class and sat near the front. And, so student <laughs> and, I, and I, didn't, I didn't talk a lot and probably <laughs> sat near the back. So, yeah, <laughs> But I met him later. He was juggling with a friend that I, or somebody that I knew. Like so, literally juggling? Yeah, literally juggling. What were you juggling? Pretty good. I want a visual. Um, I Knives, flames, I th- balls. It, I think it was just balls. Okay. So not yeah. not too exciting. Bibles. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the the next year after that, we reconnected at kind of a party that they were having promoting Greek life and reaching out to people in Greek life and just the random party they were having in training. And it happened to be my birthday, too. And Aww. we kind of talked the whole night. And She didn't tell me until the end of the night, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there lots of... Stephen had lots of good questions that I could tell were 
the kind of questions that were gonna he was really gonna get to know important things about me, but also was at a level that it wasn't too deep for just being friends. I had this idea that he had thought about it, he had come up with intentional questions, and he was asking lots of people these questions, but he did really care about my answers. And that kind of led us into this space where I was sharing one of the questions he asked was what you know, something God had been sharing with me this year, something I had learned that he had kind of been putting on my heart. And so I shared whatever thing that it was for that year. And I asked Stephen back and he shared what was something he had been praying about recently. And then for the next week, unbeknownst to each other, we ended up praying with the other person's insights mm. for the whole. And the Lord just started doing things in our hearts through what he had spoke to the other person and really helped us to fall in love with him deeper through that. Wow. So So then. So Sparks, uh, at what point, now I do want to maybe take a moment before I ask you the question of when you were aware that this is more than just a beautiful brother and sister in Christ relationship. Um, You obviously, through both of your conversions and maturity, came to understand the whole, if you will, mission of man and woman in a way that's very different from most of your culture. Fair to say? When you're on college campuses, sure. you're looking at each other in a different way. Just maybe for our listeners, what was different in w- this emerging relationship and courtship, and why is it better? Different than what just the most of the culture, ninety-eight percent of the people, and the way they're evaluating what they do with attractive members and what they talk about, and you know, you encountered something different, and obviously, it's a basis of something solid happening here. Maybe just give us a portrait of for those listening and asking the question: What is what, <laughs> what is a, what is a what is godly dating or looking at another member of the opposite sex like? How should we be looking at that? How did you experience all that? Those are like four questions in one. One of the things that I notice most readily, we always, whenever we're watching a movie or something and they start to bring up and someone just says, I just feel ready or I just feel that this is right. We always turn and laugh at each other because that's, <laughs> that's such a physical response that is natural for a woman to feel for a man and a man to be with a woman at any point. And it doesn't really have anything to do with who they are. You know, oh, you feel ready. Wow. You know? <laughs> um, you're already five steps in. I'm sure you do. Yeah. And so I think there's this thing that a lot of the kind of worldly dating is led by this let's just do something with our bodies together and then that'll tell us how Mm. we'll fit you know and then and then we'll decide later and that's kind of a side thing or those where steven and Mm. i were really in a place to look at each other and try to see the person for who they are Mm. recognizing that kind of theology of the body concept that i am my body Mm. my body reveals who i am and that i don't want to be seen just as a woman or just as a man Mm. But really for who I am is Amber Sobolski, Amber Fessler at the time, and who he is is Stephen Sobolski. And that godly dating really started with learning who the person is. So that involves kind of what does their spiritual life look like? What is their relationship with God is? But also just what do they want out of their future? Are we headed in the same place? Do we want to live the same kind of life? Do we want to live in the same kind of places, what are our families like, even secular kind of things of just a lot of people never ask the question of how does this person, you know, do they, what kind of life do they want to live? Do they want to have nice things and or sort of be a couple who's really hospitable and has a really nice house that they can welcome people into and invite the poor into and really serve the poor? Or does this person want to be radical on mission, moving all around, really walking, you know, and just what does their life want to look like and 
do I want to be on that journey with them? And do we think about things the same way? Do we enjoy time together? All those kind of things that people just tend to skip over. So I really love that, that at the very heart of it is really a spiritual thing, relational, spiritual, getting, discovering the humanity of the other person. Uh, and it's very selfless also, I think. It's an appreciation for God and that other person, not what that person can do for me or whatever. Um, and I suspect it is a sense of encountering God more fully. It edifies you. Uh, Stephen, you're asking her questions early on that sparked um, a spiritual kind of attraction. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I I can say on my part that a, a great influence in my decision to ask Amber out, um, so all of the things that she said, but really the, the moment of decision came for me during a homily on hell, of all things. Um, <laughs> now, via negativa, right? Via intro. negativa. Let me, allow me to explain, Please though. Please do. <laughs> I, Quickly, the, Amber says. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard this story many times. The, so the, the, yeah, the priest in his homily, he was talking about hell, and he, he shared that the first principle of hell is I am my own. I belong to myself. No one, not even God, can help me. Um, and he didn't make this connection, but clearly the Holy Spirit wanted me to be in the vocation I'm in because he made the point um, that that marriage is a radical statement that I'm not my own, that I don't belong to myself, that I lay my life down for another. And I, I had been struggling with sort of the culture's image of marriage that, or of dating, and I'd been very wounded by that. And so mm. I, I wanted to, to ask Amber out, but I, I was, was worried that, you know, is this just my, my old selfishness coming up or, or, or is this actually a good and godly thing to do? And after that homily, I realized that, that, that yes, absolutely, that, that, you know, that if this is where God is calling me, um, that this is a beautiful path of, of sanctification, of, of self-gift. Um, and, and so that was, yeah, that was a really important moment for my, my discernment of, of whether or not to pursue Amber. So share with us, uh, how did you both come to a point of expressing and then just kind of color in for us a little bit of the journey up to marriage? Yeah, so a couple weeks once Stephen did decide this, realized that when you're in a small area with hundreds of people, it's kind of hard to get somebody alone to ask them. <laughs> but we, we were in the cafeteria one day, and, and he came up, and, and I was very, you know, I wasn't sure whether he wanted to talk or not, and very made him take the courage step and, you know, get out of line and come over to the line that I was in and say hi and um, ask me if I was going to go to a talk afterwards that they were having during the lunch session. And one of the interesting things for people listening thinking, you know, how do I meet my spouse? Those kind of things. Every relationship is two unrepeatable human beings interacting with each other. Mm. So their story is going to be a, their story and about who they are as people. Steve and I love intellectual kind of conversations. So the first thing we went to was a talk about the existence of God. <laughs> and, you know, how do you prove that intellectually and all these kind of things. But Stephen asked if I was going, and I wasn't planning on going. And um, but kind of entering into that freedom that he trusted, like, okay, well, he, you know, he asked me, and he's going to go to the talk, so he's going to go to the talk. And he, you know, said that, and I'm like, oh, well, if you're going to talk, I'm going to go to the talk. <laughs> and so um, there's sort of some of that interplay of he took the courage to reach out and invite me to things, and I showed that receptivity. When mm. he invited me, I was quick to respond. Yes, I do want to be where you are. Yes, I, you know, I want to hang out there. I want to um, – and there are a lot of kind of funny moments of – 
things that he tried to reach out over Facebook message or something or I shut it down, but then was was very clear when we were in person that I would just linger around where he was <laughs> and those kind of things. And uh, very shortly into that, he did ask, ask me on an actual date. We went on the date. We got to know each other through that and kind of continued from there. So pretty much at that point from dating, uh, obviously there's a maturity in the Catholic faith, and you guys were in that, certainly focused to understand dating as an end in mind. And to exclude all others uh, really means, um, you know, you're excluding all others to be exclusive. And God has a design and a plan for that. So praise God. How long uh, from that point of the first date till engagement and then marriage? So, yeah, as it turned out, I asked Amber to marry me six months to the day after I asked her out on a date, which wasn't my plan. Um, She noticed it before I did. Um, (laughs) She's the numbers girl. Yeah, Mm. and it's worked out that way. And then we were engaged for seven months. Yeah, so... A little over a year between. It was interesting to share with people, too, who are thinking about things that we were at a place in our lives. We were a little bit older. We had dated several people before. We had really thought through what we wanted. We had learned a lot about who we were. We were very self-aware of who ourselves were as much as possible. We you know, learn every day how much we don't know about ourselves. But, um, yeah, just in that place that it was a lot easier to kind of quickly say, yeah, let's be very intentional about the places that we date, the encounters we have while we're dating, where we're going, what we're doing, so that we can learn as much as we possibly can about each other and the things that are important. So let's dive into it. Thank you guys uh, for an awesome portrait and, and just the blessing of your marriage itself, which of course is a witness. But you were called specifically to be engaged in Catholic mission, Catholic ministry, specifically on college campuses, a mission that you both share now with little Toby joining the Trinity there, uh, a <laughs> little 10 months old. So share with us first and foremost, help our listeners who maybe don't know about this alien creature called the modern college student in the campus. And I know there is many different campuses and people, but there is a kind of cultural portrait and a kind of wiring. And I think it's a bit of a mystique to, to those of us who are a little bit older. So maybe to start by telling us, how, help us understand what is the modern college student culture like? And then maybe tell us, how do you specifically seek to open those doors for their understanding of relationship, who they are in Christ? Yeah, so one thing that I can say is that the, and this is speaking very generally, but um, one of the the fundamental bits of woundedness that we come up against is that the the modern college student doesn't often know how to be a friend or make friends. And so we talk about, or just be in relationship. And so we talk about having a, a, a relationship with Jesus Christ but if somebody doesn't know what a relationship is at all, like just just a relationship with anyone is, um, it can be hard to talk about about relationship with Christ. So our first effort is to to just being friends with with those with with students and teaching them about friendship, um, because that's often something that they don't that they don't understand. Um, do you have any further? Yeah. So I think the student coming into college. Many of us are where it's it's the high school student, it's the kid in your class, it's you know everyone that you know and see and kind of daily parish life, those young youth coming in. But there is a real agenda on many college campuses to try to form those students coming in into a very particular type of person. Um, we sometimes hear kind of the secular university is called the like devil's immersion program, and then. Wow. There are some beautiful and wonderful universities out there who aren't doing this and are doing beautiful things and wonderful things to form people. There are also, unfortunately, some universities who are really 
pushing the kind of new ideas about what family is, about what it means to enter into relationship with someone who have really bought that idea that a kid's going to do what a kid's going to do, so we might as well support it. We might as well encourage it. And the university, the area, is set up to kind of be this place of freedom, maybe this misunderstood place of freedom where everybody can do whatever they want with whomever they want. And as long as nobody's saying they're hurt by it, that's the only, you know, if somebody stands up and says that hurt me, that's, you know, that's kind of the only, only things we try Mm. to stop everything else. It's, you know, yeah. And all this like tolerance and love and freedom that's very undefined and amorphous, right? Yeah. uh, And this really, they think they're really trying to do a good thing, but unfortunately aren't teaching people the truth about how to live a happy life. And and so that's sort of one piece of it. And the second of it being social media is huge. And so a lot of the students are living their lives via social media and through those connections, whether it be apps that they meet people on or just they're portraying their life on the apps or living out of the apps. A lot of the you know students who don't know where else to go are videotaping their whole life and putting it on social media and these other kind of things that that's they live a lot of their life in the virtual world. So in the midst of all that, I just experience hunger. Like the portrait that you just painted, I just experience, uh, you know, a desire to be known and to know. And you're, you're blessed to, to kind of know that architecture of the human person, if you will. You're blessed to know the conclusion and you're blessed to see that there, I assume, you see the corresponding um, depression and uh, disconnect and isolation. Um, so... Share with us a little bit, how does focus specifically seek to be, if you will, the hand of God in reaching in there and uh, being occasions of transformation? So one of the things we really seek to do first is to teach what Stephen was talking about, friendship. Just that, what does it mean to receive love? What does it mean to be loved? What does it mean to be cared for? And so one of the things, when we're going on to a college campus, Stephen and I as missionaries, we cannot evangelize the entire college campus. Mm -hmm. I am not going to teach 20,000 students how to love God well Mm -hmm. when they're at the place that they're at. But I can really invest my life in two or three. Mm -hmm. And so last year, I spent most of the year with two girls. Mm -hmm. And I really poured myself into those two girls and tried to spend as much time as I could with family life and, you know, and whatever other girls were around and those kind of things. But those two were the people that I spent the most time praying with, the most intentional, reaching out, make sure, committed to meeting with them, to spending time, to sharing life. And then those two girls were sharing their lives with other women. And they're reaching out. And one of those girls in particular ended up working with three other girls by the end of the year and really teaching them what it meant to pray, sharing her experience, really drawing them in. And one of those girls was meeting with another girl. And that kind of that girl three marks down, I never would have brought her into the Catholic Center. I never would have met her. I never would have been able to share the faith with her. But the girl that was working with her, she knew her from somewhere, and she invited her Bible study, brought her along with her to Bible study for several years, and gradually she came to the place where she was ready for a daily prayer life. She was hunger for, hungering for more, and just that beautiful that I never could have reached that girl, but because I invested deeply in a couple of girls, and they invested deeply in a few more, and everybody, no matter their personality, can, can make a couple friends. Mm. 
That's really awesome. Uh, there's a good book we had the author Eric Sammons on. His book is The Old Evangelization, and the premise is just this, that it is the one-on-one. And I do think that there's an awakening right now to the power of personal investment. Um, you know, social media, big events, awesome, great. You know, they have their place and opening doors. But the, the, the Christ-like discipleship that he modeled is exactly what you're saying. And obviously there's an image there of family that a husband and wife with their children is the most significant place to disciple our children. Stephen, how about you? How did that play out for you? Yeah, I'd just like to underline um, what we've been talking about, the this idea of spiritual multiplication, investing deeply in a few and passing on not just um, faithfulness but fruitfulness um, is really, really the core of what we do. And it's very tempting, like you said, to look for other ways of of sharing the gospel, other ways of that. It would be wonderful if there's this way where we could set everyone on fire at once and just bring everybody in. And But that's not the model that, that Jesus gave us. Um, and so my, yeah, my own experiences with this, um, similarly to what Amber was saying, um, there are, are men that I'm working with who I could not have, have reached on my own. Um, so one of the, the men in particular, um, he was brought in by a, a student he went to high school with. Um, and so they had a relationship and, and so, um, he was able to come in and in working with him, it's been, it's been amazing to see his, his the, the transformation of, of not just his, his faith life, but his social life, what he, what he does for fun, the people that he hangs out with, mm-hmm. the extent to which he's, he's sort of moved to having Christ-centered friendships. Um, I was just talking with him a few weeks back, and some of the things he was saying, it was clear that he was talking with, with one of the other, other men involved at our, our Newman Center and was, was, was having not just superficial conversation, but, but deep, prayerful, faithful conversation, and that it was, it was, it was giving him life. And, um, yeah, the, the extent to which he's, he's been able to open up and, um, and be vulnerable um, has just been beautiful to witness. Awesome. Uh, folks, you're tuning into Ignite Radio Live. We're very blessed to have Stephen and Amber Sabolsky with us. They are missionaries with Focus Fellowship of Catholic University students, sharing with us their beautiful journey of coming to marriage and then sharing this ministry now. And now just, I think, um, the greatest challenge to all of us uh, in, a, in an area that Catholics, I think, we need to lean into a whole lot more is understanding this, you know, I guess Pope Francis calls it a mission of accompaniment, but it really is Christ spending dedicated time with a few and really forming them to be disciples. Um, what can you guys share with us maybe about some basic principles, maybe a vision and some principles of discipleship? Yeah, I can start off saying the heart of discipleship is imitation. Um, and so we can certainly talk about principles, but the, the, the very heart of discipleship is not, um, yet not a, not a program, not a particular way of doing things, but of living life with someone and allowing them to see how you live out your faith, not just in Bible study, but at the grocery store or at a restaurant or at the bus stop, um, is able to, to, to witness your lived relationship with Christ and start to to see ways in which they can they can catch that good infection. Um, so that, I would say that's the the absolutely foundational piece of of discipleship. Yeah, I always tell the girls that I'm working with that there's kind of 
three sort of stages. The first to know Christ. So the very first thing we do with all of the students that we're working with is that daily prayer life and that commitment to who God is. And then the encouragement to learn about him. We spend some time as well. So not only learning to listen in prayer, learning to hear him, learning to know him experientially, but also intellectually. It's important. We have a beautiful intellectual faith and learning who he is so I can check my kind of personal experience with Mm -hmm. the reality of what the church teaches. And so that knowing God being number one. And then number two being to imitate him, to be like him. And so as Stephen said, that, that heart being imitation, you know, Am I praying every day? Am I learning intellectually about the faith? And then am I applying that? Am I trying to grow in the virtues? Do I know about virtue? Am I seeking that out? Am I asking God in prayer so that to know him, to be like him, and then that third piece being to share him, mm. to be fruitful and to to share Christ with others, to invest in others. There are some things about the faith, some things about growing close in Christ that we never can learn on our own, that we won't know until we try to share him with other people, things that we're just going to learn and grow in Christ through sharing. So are we teaching them to pray? Are we praying? Are we teaching them to grow in virtue? Are we trying to do that? And are we teaching that fruitfulness? Not only are we being fruitful, but are we teaching the people we're working with how to be fruitful and how to teach others to be fruitful so it doesn't stop with them or that next line or the next line after it? So good. So good. Um, So take a moment, both of you or one of you or tag team it or whatever, but just what words would you speak to parents or grandparents? You know, you have these young adults that you experience in college. So either directly to that or to words, you know, as they still have them under their roof, what words of encouragement, of advice, you know, from what you see now at your place, um, what would be important for them to hear? So earlier this summer, I had a talk. Someone was saying that prayer is the most active and effective thing that you can do for someone. I know I need to say that to myself a lot <laughs> to remind myself Ooh. when I'm like, oh, what can I do to this person needs something? Da, 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 that prayer is the most active and effective thing that I can do for someone. And so very first that that's that. That does matter. It's not just this passive, well, you know, pray for mm-hmm, the person, that, mm-hmm. but it is really this active and effective thing. So that's that's one thing. Um, to know God loves your children more than you do. He wants them with him more than you do. And that can be hard to imagine sometimes, but it really is the case. And so to trust him in that prayer and that begging. Um, so that kind of being the number one thing. But then secondly, the first thing, as we've been saying that we do with students is to teach them how to hear God, to listen Mm -hmm. to God in prayer, to be committed to that. So I have heard some wonderful stories of parents who have really taught their children how to listen in prayer, taught their children how to pray, and really modeled that for them. And so first being the question, do you know how to listen in prayer if you don't learn and, you know, seek that wisdom out from the faith and then teach that to your children? It's never too late. And then that third piece being kind of repentance, it's the one thing Jesus doesn't, can't model is how to repent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so do we repent in front of our children? Are we vulnerable enough to show them that we fail too? And this is how we come back from that so that when they fail, they know this is how we can return. And love, just love your children, be a happy home, care for them, all of the things that everybody knows. That's, that's really awesome. Uh, 
I want to press you guys a little more um, maybe edgy questions at the heart of the Catholic Church right now. We know that perhaps 75% of those who call themselves Catholic, sacramentalized, not evangelized, they're gone, or for now they're away from the Church. 25% of those who call themselves Catholic have some regularity with Mass attendance. Um, And right away, I think even my framing those questions um, are not— really the best way to frame whether or not we're succeeding. One could sit in Mass and and be far away from God. It's quite possible. Um, they could be religious or pious, but not have really uh, a real meaningful relationship with Christ. So, But let's just go there. So 75% away, 25% there. And of the 25%, we know that a study a few months ago, only 13% of those even pray before supper. You know, I used to be kind of like the, you know, the staple. If you're not praying before supper, what are you doing? Um, and, I, you know, I, I do believe that that's a good challenge to all of us, that are we taking steps? I think, obviously, family culture, the whole thermostat, thermometer analogy that maybe we've heard too many times, but are we really attuned to it? I speak to myself as a husband, as a father. Are we aware of the culture around us, and are we setting it? Do we believe that we're entrusted to set that temperature? Um, but also that God's, God is going to meet our kids with that. So this is where I want to go. Um, we see great movements like Bethel. And a lot of Catholics are drawn to the dynamism of the Holy Spirit, which is in our DNA. All that is true is ours, Augustine said. And there is a dynamism of, of a life in the Spirit. Our good friend, Father Joe uh, Taphorn, we know is very involved with Focus. And I know that there's a great, uh, if you will, awakening of that dimension, that patristic time, first three centuries of the Church. We know throughout the history, Mary Healy, etc., Renewal Ministries up north, that this is an important part of the Catholic faith. Okay, duly stated. There's also, though, uh, I think, um, maybe a concern of a loss of the transcendent a concern of the loss of the things that you guys really beautifully speak to, and that is um, encountering God in a contemplative way that is not necessarily what, let's face it, what modern religion runs the risk of, of reducing it to emotions, Mm -hmm. of reducing it. So this is the question after all of that. With many great programming and Ignite and Chirp and Tech and Crucio and even Focus events, great worship, and all wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Help us understand how one should navigate in seeking God's grace in a way that doesn't reduce it to emotions, but doesn't deny emotions. Mm. That's the power question for you, Stephen. <laughs> Come on, buddy. Wow. That is powerful. I might need a moment. <laughs> I can talk. So the discernment of spirits is a great tool. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, please go seek it out. You can very easily look up discernment of spirits on the internet and come up with Ignatius's rules for those. And I think that can be something with emotions that the Lord encounters us in many ways. He encounters us in our emotions too. There's a beautiful part in the catechism about emotions too. Look up the part in the catechism about passions. <laughs> I love that part, but share a little bit. She's giving us those. assignments. I but love yeah, it. <laughs> for those of you who haven't read it or maybe you know struggle with that, I can share a little bit about passions that the emotions are meant as rockets to propel us in the direction of the Lord. And sometimes those rockets can be rightly placed and sometimes they can be wrongly placed. And so when we've had that great emotional experience that rockets us towards the Lord, that's a beautiful thing to accept, to receive, to give thanks to God for. 
and then to say, okay, and, and I want to keep going that way and to not rely on that emotional experience to always come first before I respond or that's the only thing, but to give praise to God and thanks for it. And then also to wonder when my emotional rockets point in the wrong direction that, okay, do I know how to question that? Do, do I know enough about the faith to be able to know when it's pointed in the right direction and when it's wrong? And to simply, the analogy I love of holding hands wide open and something comes into your hand and you say, do I receive it or do I simply turn my hands over, dump it out and turn them back to receive God? So I hold my hands up. Something comes in, it's not of God, I throw it out and then return my hands to receive more from God. Or if it is of God, I, I cherish it, I hold it, I love it, and I and I wait to receive more and I see what God has for you. And just a personal experience, I know in my prayer, there's oftentimes I'm sitting there and I just praise God that he knows my weakness, that I need those emotional responses sometimes, that I can sit down and yeah, it's been a crazy day and you know, with a newborn often, and I've got this, you know, however he fell asleep, and I, I, you know, sit down, and I hopefully I get 15 minutes before he wakes back up, and <laughs> just receiving that God can do in that 15 minutes for me what it, he may do in 15 hours of a contemplated life. So I sit there, I receive, and he blesses me with grace because I'm weak enough to re- need that emotional experience. Um, but then there are other times he doesn't, and he blesses me with the grace to be strong enough to persevere in that time of prayer without it. Thank you, Amber. Thoughts? Yeah, I will. I will add one thing. I think um, I've heard heard it said that emotions are um, wonderful companions but terrible guides, and mm. so I think that we we need to be um, very clear on on truth. Um, and I, I appreciated you mentioning sort of the the value of these more charismatic and and um, experiences of of worship. That this is very good, a real part of our faith, um, and and you know, religious experience experiences in prayer are are very beautiful. Um, but to 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 always be clear on yeah, just ob- objective reality. And I'll I'll use the example of the Eucharist. Um, so we know that the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. Um, and so if in emotional experience is drawing us to to delve more deeply into the mystery of the Eucharist, to become more faithful to to daily mass, to to encounter Christ there, then great. That's that's an authentic spiritual experience, I would say, because um because it's leading us in or it's or it's accompanying us as we as we move in the direction of of truth. But if we're having an experience in prayer that's that's causing us to be less devoted to the Eucharist, well, we can very safely discount that because we know it's conflicting with, mm-hmm. um, yeah, with with truth that it, as it has been revealed to us. I love you guys. Yes, yes, you're, you're yes. awesome, and I think it's a great conversation that really we, I think we can unpack a lot more, and the church needs to reflect on more because I do think um, we in the great praise and worship movement and all that is good is ours and worshiping God is awesome and I love that there is a risk there's a risk that we can be worshiping emotions in the name of God mm-hmm. and I think the younger generation in particular I suspect might need some calibration if you will of what what is a what is faith that isn't reduced to a next emotional high 
um, which is, quite frankly, if it's a using of persons to, if you will, be stimulated by another person, well, this could be in a sense of using God, in a sense for sensations. And we know St. John of the Cross, Dark Night of the Soul, that we need to recognize God's formative hand in privation, the capacity to love without necessarily the sense. Husband and wife anchored in that. And I hear you guys giving testimony to that, the beauty of love, of the choice to do what it is you are called to do. You're participating in God in Gethsemane, the hardest place, mm-hmm. and that God's going to form us in that Gethsemane moment. In my mind, that, that to me is a bit of a, um, I don't know, a focus, a focus, a target to form a generation of disciples that are willing to go to Gethsemane, mm-hmm. that are willing to endure privation, and this is the danger, though, because it's not about us making that. Oh, I need to do this because that's the challenge, right? I mean, it, it comes naturally. But to balance that, obviously, of course, with that exuberant praise that God, and, the, and, to, and to praise God, quite frankly, even if we don't feel it, sacrifice of praise, that our hearts are lifted to God and the psalmists, mm. great examples. It's weaving awareness, sensory awareness of God with privation of God and, and that realm of things. I'm delighted that... Um, for focus, I'm delighted for Curtis Martin and the whole crew there involved, and good housemates of mine that you mentioned, Ted Sri and Tim Gray, are awesome, and even Father Eric Nielsen. I don't know if we connected on this, but he went to my high school. Oh, he was before me, and so, uh, and I know he's a superstar. And if it can happen at University of Wisconsin Madison, if 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 revival can happen there, it can happen anywhere. And uh, so, the fact that you guys are going into this and um, being witnesses with your family and speaking to these young adults and seeing them become disciples. Um, in a word, because we're going to land here really quickly, but um, just a word on focus. How is focus doing? Where are they at now? What are their dreams? So focus last year had more than 660 missionaries on 137 campuses and we're Woo-hoo. yeah, uh, adding more this year and a few international campuses wow. that we were at last year and the years before and continuing. There are tens of thousands of alumni all across the nation, and that continues to grow. And 674 people that have made decisions to pursue religious life. Wow, praise God. That's amazing. How many? 674. Praise God. That's their newest number. So just beautiful things. And uh, if you're interested in learning more, Seek 2019 is going to be in Indianapolis this year. So very drivable distance. It's our winter conference. Everybody from all across the nation comes together. They're great speakers, great times of adoration, and that really invitation to grow deeper and see what are we doing and meet some of the college students. Stephen, Amber, and vicariously little Toby, little on fire evangelist in the making. Thank you. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, you fashion our hearts for you. You're indwelling and overflowing. Let your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit.